everyone. I'm Dr. Yosefa Fogel-Rubel, and this is One-on-One Women Talk Torah, a series brought to you by Matan Women's Institute for Torah Study. Welcome back to Matan's One-on-One podcast, where we spend 30 minutes speaking about a seminal figure or idea on that week's Parsha. Matan will mark 35 years of women's learning with the Yishai Rubo concert at the Jerusalem Theater this week, October 8th, the 13th of Tishrei. Check out the website for more details. Join us at Matan's Jerusalem branch on Oshana Rabbah evening for a moving learning experience. Rabbinit Rachel Sprecher Frankel, Dr. El Ziegler, and Rabbinit Chani Tergen, Motzei Shabbat, the 20th Tishrei, or October 15th. The evening has been dedicated in memory of Yair Mordechai by his widow and Matan student, Yair Mordechai. It's not too late to register for yearly classes. Check out the Matan website for all relevant information. If you would like to sponsor a podcast episode in honor or memory of a loved one, please contact the Matan office via telephone or email us at podcast at matan.org.il. Parshat HaZinu is comprised of a poem describing the consequences of Israel's anticipated betrayal of God, a real negative prediction on the part of Moshe. The poem emphasizes God's faithfulness and Israel's betrayal. God brought the people through the desert and into the promised land, and the people squander the opportunity and forget God. In a measure-for-measure measure punishment, God withdraws from Israel, and they suffer from war and natural disaster. God only saves Israel from total destruction in order to prevent the enemy from claiming credit for itself. Today, I have the pleasure of speaking with Sarah Tillinger Walkenfeld to speak about the ways we hear Torah and the prophets of oral Torah, connecting with the form and function of the Hazinu poem. Sarah is the Chief Learning Officer at Safaria, an online database and interface for Jewish text, and is also a fellow at the Hartman Institute of North America. She writes about Jewish texts and Jewish law, and her current projects focus on applying Talmudic ideas to questions of advancements in digital technology. Sarah, it's a pleasure to be speaking to you. Thank you, Yosefa. I'm so honored to be here. Can you tell us a little bit about that last piece in your bio? Uh, it sounds fascinating, and all of us that are sort of dizzied by all the quote-unquote advancements, I think a lot of times we wonder how that positively can impact education in the world today. So I'm curious what those projects look like. I'm happy to share. I'm really fascinated by the ways that societies create and adapt to new technologies for the transmission of knowledge, and especially given my work, given my background, I'm very interested in the technologies that we use to transmit and learn, and as you mentioned, teach Torah. The Torah itself emphasizes again and again, including in Parshat HaAzinu, the importance of passing Torah on to the next generation. And so it makes sense to me that being extremely thoughtful about the ways in which we do so is crucial to the future of the Jewish people. And I'll also note, since you you mentioned the question of, is technology a progress kind of thing, or do we feel we have negative feelings about it. When I speak about technology, I know that people's minds often go immediately to digital technology. And so I just want to be clear that I'm using the term really broadly to refer to things that people build to mediate the world or the human-built world. So books are a technology, language is a technology, scrolls are a technology, uh, anything that humans build in order to fulfill a human purpose, to quote one scholar, can be described as a technology. I'm not sure that all of our audience is familiar actually with Safaria. So I know that this isn't really a podcast episode about what is Safaria, but maybe just describe it in a few sentences. As a teacher, it's a resource I use, I guess I would say probably daily. Uh, so thank you for that. <laughs> if I can use this, uh, this moment as an opportunity for gratitude. But tell us also just in a few sentences what Safaria is. Simchan, we're honored to play that role for so many teachers and for so many learners across the world. 
Safaria is, as you mentioned in your intro, a database, it's a learning tool to help all Torah learners engage more deeply with Torah. Our mission is to open up access to Torah, to the core Sfarim of our tradition, to all those who want to learn, and to bring Torah into the digital age, to maximize the potential of Torah in the digital age, so that we're really being thoughtful about what it is that digital technologies can help us do in combination with, or sometimes as replacements for, older technology. So on a practical level, also just say that us teachers use it for basic access to lots of different texts. There's a lot of different amazing functions for how we can make source sheets and then share them with uh, with the world in a very uh, wonderful formatted way. Uh, there's a lot of different functions how you can actually compare texts on Safari. And in a very important caveat, I'll say it's also, it's free, uh, which is a difference from, from other digital technologies out there that provide access to texts. And there there's so many more things, but for anyone who's not familiar with Safari at this point, I really encourage you to go check it out because it's a wonderful a wonderful interface. It has notoriously also Steinzelt's commentary on the Gemara, which is a big one that people use it for as well. So please go and check that out and see. They're constantly adding new books to the database of the books there. And that's a tremendous gift to teachers and, and learners all over the world. Okay, so Sarah, why don't you take us into this week's Parsha of Hazino? And I'm really curious to hear the angle you want to take looking at this, uh, the poem and its content, sort of, I described it in the introduction. But we're going to really look at it today from the perspective of the way the Torah is transmitted or the, the medium that's being used in this Parsha. So take us in there. That's right. I think that this week's Parsha really begs the question of what's the best medium for learning Torah. The way that you encounter Torah, the way that you experience it in your life can really make a difference. I think as teachers, we know that. As learners, I think we all have that experience. And in Hazinu, there's a strong emphasis on hearing the Torah, on an oral experience of Torah. The first two psukim uh, open, open up this possibility. Hazinu Hashemayim v'adzabera v'tishma ha'aretz imei pi. Moshe is speaking to the people, as he has been throughout, and says, listen, heavens, and I'll speak. Let the earth hear the words that I say. And goes on from there to compare his words to rain and to dew. That his his words are coming out like the rain, and they're they're like showers on on grass. Um, that's the continuation of the psukim there. And I think it's striking that as he describes something that's oral, as his words are are being heard by the people, Moshe describes his words as having real impact in a way that maybe we as as readers, as people who I would say that probably for most of us, our experience of Torah is defined and limited in some way by the experience of reading books. And so it's striking to notice that the impactful piece here is the fact that Moshe's words are being heard. They're being heard by heaven and earth. Rashi commenting on this pasuk says they're being witnessed by heaven and earth, that heaven and earth are witnesses here. And that's also really striking to me because we know that in the Jewish legal system, witnesses have the ability to legally enforce things. So it isn't just that they hear what's being said, but they can testify to it afterwards. It has lasting power. And also that comparison to reign and to do, again, these words are not just something that's sort of said and disappear. They're something that have physicality and have lasting impact. 
So I'll just comment on that first pasuk, which is that that phrase that the the world itself can actually testify to God's power and his uh, and his involvement in creation. So that's actually a the Torah's use of a of an ancient Near Eastern concept and trope. I Meaning we find that phraseology in many other ancient texts, and it's not just a mere academic point, but the point is that that's incredibly powerful. Look around the world, and the world is a witness to God. I mean, if you don't look around the world and see traces of God, then somebody has missed something in the way they're observing the world. And that's piece number one that I was thinking about. And the second piece, and I believe I mentioned this in a later episode, but I've been recording episodes not in their chronological order, so please forgive me, audience, if I've made a mistake on that one, that we have to remember that we're not speaking to a literate audience. Most people in the ancient world, for many, many more years after the Torah is given, people are not in houses with bookshelves. What we have, you know, what I see behind Sarah as we're speaking, this is not something that existed in the world. And so the oral form or the poem form, which to us can sometimes seem difficult and, and even archaic sometimes, and certainly the language is very challenging, that was the way that they were able to remember and commit things to memory because they didn't have the faculty of literacy in the same way we have it today. That's such an important point that, again, I think is, is so easy to miss just because I can't even really picture what it would be like to sit down in a Beit Midrash and learn Torah without there being books there, let alone be able to picture my house without all of the books. And so I think that that point about imagining ourselves in the shoes of an ancient, uh, an ancient Jew, someone in, among B'nai Israel listening to this, it would have been so different. And there's a beautiful Midrash on this pasuk from Tzvarim Rabbah. It's, it's almost like an extended meditation on the importance of your ears in determining your relationship with Torah. The Midrash actually says that it's a, it's a famous idea that um, we always seek refuah, we always seek medication, healing, a doctor, if someone's life is in danger on Shabbat. And for this reason, we can also treat ear illnesses on Shabbat. If something's wrong with your ears, you should treat that even on Shabbat. You should break Shabbat in order to do that because it's the most important part of your body in terms of your ability to take in Torah, your whole relationship with Torah is mediated by your ability to hear the messages, which again, I'm not sure that that is what would come to mind for me. I might think first and foremost about my eyes, but I think there's something so powerful about the idea that the Torah that you hear around you is what's going to shape your experience of that Torah. You know, as I was looking at some of the relevant sources and preparing for this conversation, I was trying to think about the role of my ears in my religious life today, because I, like you, I'm, I'm a book lover. It's no secret to those who are listening. And I get unbelievable delight and, and meaning from, from my reading. But I was actually thinking, let's say, about the podcast medium, which has become so powerful. It's not only powerful because we have a lot of dead time, quote unquote, in our lives. And so we want to fill it up and we can't always read at the same time that we're, I don't know, folding laundry or in a car. But I was trying to think about the things I've heard that impacted me in the last while. And I was realizing that when I read, I can read a lot more that doesn't sort of touch me. I Meaning there's a lot that can just sort of like pass through me. But when I'm actually listening to something of content, it actually in many ways has more of a chance of impacting me than the things that I read. I Meaning if I can think of a book, I'll think of a few scenes in the whole book that I just, I, I won't forget. Mm. But then I, last night I was having conversations with my husband about something I didn't even remember that I remembered, an episode I heard last year. And, and I realized that something that I heard there struck so deeply that it came up randomly in a conversation with him. And so I think that 
we sometimes underestimate how much the listening is impactful because we're so taken in the world today with our eyes, either that we're reading or we're watching, obviously, many times. And so there's something about that, the faculty of hearing that I wonder, I wonder if for others also is even more impactful sometimes than what they imbibe through their eyes. Just a thought I'll leave out there. Yeah, I, I think that there's so many different ways to learn. And we, we know that people learn differently, but I think that you're right that we sometimes underestimate what it is that we hear. And also, I think that there is a little bit of a cult around books in the Jewish world today. And, and that also contributes to this or, or is a symptom of this piece where we underestimate the possibility of hearing something said that we have become so attached to books that we seem to believe that they were always a part of the experience. And by the way, to bring it back to the Parsha for a moment, I think that when, when Moshe is saying these words, and this is clearly meant to be an oral, A-U-R-A-L, right? A heard experience hmm. for the people. Yeah. There's really nothing right here in this poem that tells us whether it was meant to be an oral experience or a written experience for the one reading it. And in, the, mm. in, in other places, in, in the previous parak, there's a, a reference to writing where God actually says, that write down this song. And there's a debate in the Mepharshim, is this all of the Torah? Is this Ta'azinu? Maybe it's something else. And so even that question of what's the experience, are we supposed to read this poem out loud so everyone can hear it? Are we supposed to sing it? That's also a suggestion in the Mepharshim. Are we supposed to recite it from memory? And so that also, I think, changes the experience for both the reader and I think also for the people who are hearing it to know that it comes from within a person or it comes from a written text that's in front of that person. Right, that's a great point. And to remember that's connected to that previous piece there. We, we mentioned that also on a, very briefly in a different episode. I would say, by the way, that on a basic level, the Shira Hazot is Ha'azinu, meaning whether or not it's also the Torah is a question, but it's very hard to, to say that it's not speaking about Ha'azinu. And that's a really important point, that this was definitely intended to be written down and read for eternity, but it also still means that the people themselves weren't holding a copy in their hands. I will say that one of my children had to memorize the entire poem last year for school. It's a really, really, really a hard poem to memorize, and she did unbelievably. <laughs> but yeah, but it also is very powerful. And, you know, she doesn't understand most of it, but there it is, committed to memory. Okay, so let's go further in our exploration of, uh, of the power of, of oral Torah and what this means. Again, with the assumption that most people were hearing this and were not reading it. So I do think that those, those opening psukim, the whole framing here, leads us to ask what's so great about the model of oral Torah. And I think we've already explored that a little bit. You can see even in the continuation of the psukim that there is an attention being paid to the fact that this is something that is being said and being said over. Not just that it's being said once, but that the entire experience of Torah is something that you can repeat to the next generation. And of course, this comes up many times in the Torah, uh, but specifically in this week's parasha, in uh, Paraklamadet Pesuk Zayin, it says, Zachor Yemot Alam Binu Shnot Dor Vador. 
So remember what happened before. Remember the days of old. Consider the ages of past. Ask your father or your parents who will inform you and your elders who will tell you. And that, I would say, is an important advantage of oral Torah, is that it can be used to form relationships in a way that I would argue books cannot or often don't. If I have to tell you the information that I know, that means that we're sitting here speaking together. And that's the beginning of a relationship between the two of us that can continue through our conversations, through our chavruta, through our learning together. And I think that that's a piece of oral Torah that maybe is picked up by podcasts, to your point, that once I've learned from you over a podcast, I've heard your voice. And that's really different. Actually, the Nitziv commenting on that first pasuk, Hazinu Hashemayim Ba'adabera, that Moshe says, I'm going to speak. The Nitziv says, Adabera, that it's, uh, Moshe was speaking like in a very strong, um, forceful way. And that's something else about oral Torah. And maybe to your point about the things that stick with you when you hear them, is that you can nuance things when you say them out loud in a way that you can't when you write them. I think we probably all had the experience of a text message that is misinterpreted. It's a joke, but the humor doesn't come through. It's serious, but they think it's a joke because it's very hard to nuance your language when it's written. I'll also add that even the narrative texts in the Torah, uh, many, many scholars often call us to remember that these were likely texts that were first spoken as stories throughout the generation. Again, that m- the image of everybody sort of sitting around the, the zaken, the elder or the rebbe even, and hearing these stories or hearing these psukim, and that when one reads a text, you also have to listen to it, meaning often we can miss alliteration or there were different ways that the texts were organized, different words, syllables, rhyming patterns, not just in poetic texts, also in narrative texts that are there in order to help whether sort of vivify the story or also to help it, again, more be easily committed to memory. But that concept is not just in the poem. It's really all of storytelling in general. That's the power of hearing stories, thinking about, you know, magical moments with a family member or a grandparent or all those memories that that people can have throughout their life or these sort of these moments where you're enraptured by a story and that that is the power of it. Whether you're giving over Torah, whether you're giving over stories or even family lore, all of that is sort of a very powerful meaning of people, of souls. Yes, I think that it is really very important to remember that that was people's experience of Torah for such a long time. Um, my, my professor from when I was an undergrad at the University of Pennsylvania wrote a great article about the ways in which Midrash is so clearly a form of exegesis that responds to hearing the Torah read orally, and that it's completely different mm-hmm. from the types of Torah interpretations that we find once codices are more widely available. And once, once you see that, or at least for me, once I saw that, I couldn't unsee it, that it seemed so obvious to me that my experience of texts is entirely shaped by, by reading them. And this is something that educators sometimes say to me, that it's so important to them that students see the words written on a page. And educators have gone so far as to say, well, that, that's like more authentic, right? That's the way it's supposed to be. We're supposed to have students reading, studying Svarim. I'm a big lover of Svarim, and I don't, I don't not support that vision. And also, I think it's just one of a range of authentic visions that we could have for how texts of Torah are experienced and taken in.
One more thing that I would add on this question of oral Torah versus written Torah or about written Torah specifically is, again, coming back to this question of what was written down, how much was written down, when was it written down? The source for the mitzvah to write a Torah scroll, to actually write down one's own Torah, is sourced to the previous parak, Tzvarim Parak Lamed Aleph, and the Sefer HaChinuch most famously, but Sifrei Halacha in general, talk about this mitzvah that one should write down a Torah scroll for oneself, that this is uh, something that everyone should do. And, and he even talks about um, establishing a place to learn, having uh, Sofrim, having scribes write lots of different books, and that it's a bracha, it's a blessing to be able to write down Torah. The Gemara also speaks about this, about the mitzvah of writing down a Torah, and that even if you already had one, you should write it down, which I think just provides another way of thinking about technologies of transmission. You mentioned, Yosefa, that your daughter had to memorize uh, the entire Shira of Ha'azinu. So not only did she recite it, but she had that experience of committing it to memory. And someone who writes down the Torah or writes down any safer, any words of Torah, not only has the experience of then being able to read it, but, but has that activity of writing it down. And so I think that that's another piece that we sometimes miss when we're thinking about just the end product. I just I heard the podcast or I read the book, but also thinking about how we ourselves can be involved in the production of knowledge in different ways provides another important component for thinking about the best possible technologies for learning or teaching Torah. It's interesting because now we outsource that mitzvah to people who it's their profession. So obviously in, in a very practical way, we sort of don't necessarily have that same contact with that mitzvah. But I think as an idea, it's a really, really important one that the way to make Torah be a part of us ultimately is that we have to write it ourselves. And it's, I'm thinking of the image of when we were studying for tests and then we would take notes of our notes, right? So that we would, I at least did, <laughs> that we would have to, you know, write write the notes so that it would be, you know, much more of a part of myself. Uh, and the Torah sort of is committing that as a as a regular form of how Torah should become part of us. And so it's also interesting how it's mixing also that that literacy, the reading and writing piece also. It's, it's like, it's an expectation that everybody will be able to write that. So we've outsourced that today, but at least on an ideal level, the Torah itself is also expecting, or Halakha certainly is expecting a certain level of of literacy of all Jewish individuals. You mentioned earlier the ability to build and share and I will say that this idea of writing your own Torah has always been an animating ideal for Safaria. That exactly as you mentioned, even if we can't all write our own Safer Torah, there is something about being able to write down or, or digitally record, put out into the world one's own words of Torah, and then share those really broadly. And because I think that that's actually part of this mitzvah is not just that you write it down, but that it can then be passed around, it can then be shared. That's a big advantage of written text over oral text. It's it's easier mm-hmm. to share. I mean, it, it's there's a downside in that we're not sharing it personally necessarily, but it's really easier to share around. Digital has that even more so, even easier to, as it were, pass around those copies. And so a motivating belief for Safaria has always been that everyone can share Torah. Everyone can write Torah of their own. And we really wanted to make it easy for people to put all of that out into the world. 
That's beautiful. I never realized that there was like an ideology behind the ability to share source sheets on Safari. So that made that much more meaningful. And a series that I did on this podcast with Tanya, with Dr. Tanya White, we actually made the source sheets available to everybody and we linked them. And they were also through Safari. So that's really beautiful. I, I didn't realize that that was, that was the background. Awesome. The transition from oral Torah to written Torah, from written Torah to digital, I guess I skipped print in the middle, really pushes us to ask, and again, I think it's a question raised by this Parsha, what happens when we shift the way we experience Torah? We may not realize it, but there are significant differences between the ways that our brains process information depending on whether it's written or oral, in print or written by hand, on paper, on a screen. By the way, we didn't really touch on yet the way that this poem is written in the Torah itself, that it looks different. Whenever there's a shirai, it looks different in the text of the Torah scroll. Scrolls also, by the way, a very old yes. technology for um, experiencing written text, one that Jews uniquely have held onto, but most other communities have sort of uh, let those fall by the wayside. And so there's a difference. It really makes a difference to us um, how we experience these texts. And again, I think that's something that's raised very powerfully by this week's Parsha. Yeah, organized in columns. Those columns also, from a poetic perspective, help to emphasize the uh, the different uh, parts of each of the sentences. Because of course, a poetic sentence does not read the same. It's not broken up the same as a as a prose sentence. So there are two different ways, actually, that the uh, that the Torah and Nevi'im will will align the different columns of the poem. But yes, in Hazinu, it's two uh, it's two columns, and that's what you'll see inside the Torah. And in many also printed editions, they'll organize it that way as well. Yeah, and I think that's a really interesting decision by people who were printing the Torah to preserve that even if the rest of the print edition doesn't look the same way, right? It's not a tikkun, it doesn't look the same way as it does in the scroll of the Torah. But in many cases, they made the decision to preserve that. And from where I sit, that's really a big question that, that involves my day-to-day work is what do you preserve? What do you change? What's the same? What's different? What are the new possibilities to take advantage of when you're transitioning from one medium to another in experiencing Torah. And although it's not directly linked to this week's Parsha, I'll mention that the the Bavli, the Gemara itself, is very interested in this question of oral Torah versus written Torah and how you move from one to the other. And there's a famous story in the Gemara in Gittin about Rabbi Yochanan and Reish Lakish who were studying a book of Agadah, it uses that word, Sifrada Agadata, on Shabbat together, and the Gemara is they're shocked and horrified because you're not allowed to write down Agadah. It's Torah Shabbat Pei, you're not allowed to write it down. And the Gemara goes on to say, that sometimes you have to uh, break laws in order to preserve Torah. That's my paraphrase. It's time to act for God. So they've nullified your Torah is the more literal translation. And so there is this way in which we're sometimes willing to transition to a new medium when we believe that there will be a better, an easier, a more impactful experience of Torah as a result. And I think we're really lucky because we have such a range of options today. It's really a Shefa Bracha. We hear the Torah read in Shul on Shabbat from a scroll, which again, not many people get that experience. And there's no question in my mind, by the way, that that's a really authentic experience of Hazinu is to go hear it 
read. So I, I plug uh, Shul on Shabbat for, for all those for whom it's a possibility. <laughs> uh, we can see it written Thank as you. a scroll. We can ensure that we fulfill the mitzvah of writing Torah in different ways. We can own books and write books and buy books for others, which is something that was unheard of for most of human history. I'm, I'm packing up my house to move and I realize that I have maybe 15 copies of Tanakh, which is incredible, including like pocket-sized ones. So I think we have all of that and we have the ability to look at new technologies such as digital and explore the options that they offer with a really careful and honest assessment of what will help us pass down Torah and bring more Torah into the world. And I think that story that you brought from the Gemara and Gitin represents what always happens, which is that whenever we change or adapt to a different medium, we always will have the naysayers. It goes back to my introduction when I said progress in air quotes, right? Those of us who are, you know, might be doubtful or not sure about the changes that are happening in the world. For example, let's say like the Kindle and making books electric. And you sort of say, well, what do you mean? You're not going to, you're not going to turn pages anymore, right? You're, you're, what does that mean? And what, what, how you can't smell the book, right? All, all those natural doubts that will come up when we think about changing mediums. But I love the point that you just brought up, which is that you don't have to look at it as that time is changing and it's forcing things to be passe, but that we're just living in a time where there are many options about the ways that we can specifically in our case, interface with Torah, the way we can experience Torah, the way we can read it and learn it. And that is nothing more than an abundance in this world. It doesn't have to instill necessarily fear or or concern because we still have all of those mediums available to us. We have the scrolls, we have the, the books, and we have the digital. And I think that that's a really beautiful point about the the abundance that we're living with today. Sarah, thank you so much for this conversation. I think it really opened up a number of new ways for all of our listeners to think about, to think about this part, to think about the way they themselves experience Torah and the different ways they interact with the world and with their knowledge. Thank you, Yosefa. This has been such a fun conversation, and I really appreciate the invitation. I hope you've enjoyed this conversation as much as I did. I'm Dr. Yosefa Fogel-Rubel, and this is One-on-One Women Talk Torah, a series brought to you by Matan Women's Institute for Torah Study. Please do one-on-one and women's Torah learning a small favor by sharing this podcast with family and friends so that we can reach new listeners. You can stream and download these episodes on Spotify, iTunes, Google Podcasts, SoundCloud, and Matan's website. Don't forget to leave us a five-star review in the comments. Please send us any feedback at podcast at matan.org.il. That's podcast at matan.org.il. Thanks for listening, everyone.